Hello everybody and welcome to Volume 3, Issue 137 of the Kane and Rince podcast. You can play along with Kane and Rince, Volume 3, and the next five issues are Tearaway, Fire Emblem Awakening, and a look back at the Fire Emblem series, System Shock 2, then it's the Chronicles of Riddick, Escape from Butcher Bay, and Assault on Dark Athena, and then it's Hideo Kojima's Snatcher. Head to kaneandrince.com for the full schedule, the blog, and links to our merchandise stall, where you can buy attractive fashion wear facebook google plus and uh youtube channel please remember to subscribe for that there's a lot of good stuff on there uh, and similarly please subscribe to the podcast on itunes if you haven't already and you can review and rate us there too thank you very much now joining me leon cox in this issue we have darren gargett insert googly eyes here darren gruntilda gargett mm-hmm. I, don't, I haven't thought of other ones i so. used to be called boggy back in the day so that makes sense. Mm. Ryan Heyman. I, 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 I. <laughs> That's good. That is good. I'm impressed. That is good. And Brian Tarran. Is it really boring just to say hello? Nope. Well, yes. <laughs> Sorry. But that's I fine. I apologize. That's all right. Uh, so, Banjo-Kazooie, this is our second excursion into Rare. Now, it shames me as, as a veteran of the 8-bit UK scene that we still haven't done anything by Ultimate Play the Game or even talked about Ultimate Play the Game, but I'm hoping that someday I can assemble a crew to mm. play uh, Saber Wolf or Night Law or something like that and talk about the Ultimate Days because anyone who was around them will know what a big deal that was, uh, what a big deal Ultimate were long before they went to work with uh, Nintendo on the NES and then the SNES and then the N64, which is, of course, what we're talking about today. Um, you know, this was uh, probably heading towards the latter days of their time with Nintendo. Mm. Um, they still had a f- couple of years before uh, they went to Microsoft. Um, but this game was long in development, um, and it started as a title called Project Dream, right? Mm. Yeah, indeed. It featured um, a child, like a teenage kid. Yeah, it looks, it looks kind of similar to Banjo, the bear. Um, you know, he has a backpack on, he has a similar kind of uh, outfit. And yeah, there's, there's one screenshot on the internet of Project Dream. Uh, it originally started out as a Super NES game, yeah. uh, you know, in its, in its prototype days from what, I, from what I've learned over the years. And yeah, this game was, you know, um, kind of like a, a pirate type themed game. It's, you know, the information is so scarce and rumor mills. But yeah, it was, it was kind of more leaning towards the Black Eye character in Banjo-Kazooie, who also had his own game... Uh, called Project Fear at one point, and it was kind oh. of like a Resident Evil style, <laughs> um, wow. cartoony horror game. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's something that I learned while at the, you know my time spent at Red that there was a Captain Black Eye game. You know, very very 
small amount of development went into it, but there was definitely a, a game about him. And he even references it in Tui where he says, um, you know, I once had a dream you stole my stardom uh, or no, someone like you, a bear stole my stardom or something like that. And that's to do with Banjo-Kazooie or Edison as he was known at the time coming in and taking away the, uh, the spotlight from Captain Black Eye. Fantastic knowledge. Yes, we should make it clear to new listeners or people who haven't heard the particular podcast before that um, we do have a, a semi-insider in, in our midst, although you weren't you weren't at Rare at the time of Banjo-Kazooie. No. Uh, it was probably one of the games that was responsible for you wanting to work there, I guess. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And when I, when I was getting interviewed by the guys at Rare, um, my... Uh, well, how can I put it? My my contribution towards the stop and swap theories and stuff definitely helped. Uh, you know, get my position as a tester. Okay, all mm. right. Well, obviously, we're going to talk stop and swap later, and we're also going to talk about a couple of GBA games that you you got hands on with back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, this podcast, as uh, I've said elsewhere, will not be covering Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts because hopefully one day uh, that game will get its own show. We will talk a little about Banjo-Tooie, but not as much about as we do about Banjo-Kazooie. Um, probably, uh, maybe it's not fair, I don't know, but we'll we'll come on to that. So this game finally hit the shelves uh, initially in the summer of 98, uh, most of the world. Um, Japan had to wait a little longer for their localization. Obviously, this was made in the UK um, and a relatively straightforward thing to get it out in English-speaking countries, such as the US and Australia. Um, so let's go into our histories with the game. Uh, Ryan, we, uh, we, we should also probably mention our ages when we played this, because I think it might be relevant in this game. Ryan, uh, did you buy this in the summer of 98? Uh, you know, actually, growing up, I was a PlayStation child, um, but my really? neighbors down the street who we spent a lot of time with, other kind of neighborhood kids, had an N64, and so I got to experience the highlights of the N64 catalog whenever I went over there, which we would do just about every day after school. And so, yeah, this was a, a kind of a huge game in in my own childhood. I just yeah. remember spending long evenings and nights and afternoons and mornings sometimes uh, going over to my buddy's house and playing through the old uh, Banjo-Kazooie and Banjo-Tooie just endlessly. So how old were you at this point, may I ask? Oh, I would have been eight years old. Wow. Yeah, probably the perfect age, a little younger mm. than I was. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, how about you? A little younger than I was as well. I was 16, I think, when it came out. Yeah, still uh, yeah. a good age for banjo. It was. It wasn't bad. It, I was. Uh, I, I. I can't remember whether I picked it up at the time because I probably would have just started my first uh, job then at B and Q. Uh, but I might have actually waited until Christmas rolled around and put it on my Christmas wish list. But it was uh, a, a less sociable activity than it was for Ryan. I. I spent uh, long hours in my room. Uh, playing through the game and had a, a long-suffering girlfriend at the time who had to sit and watch me play through <laughs> the game, uh, collecting yes. everything. I, I remember I remember that period of the N64 fondly and, uh, you know, Banjo-Kazooie was definitely a, a big part of that. Now, Mr. Gargett, how about you? Uh, yeah, I remember seeing this game in N64 magazine and uh, it was just one screenshot of, you know, Bird and Bear in a sewer-type level with um, a drip of water and the ripple effect on the water mm. uh, before me. And I asked the guy in, a, in the, the shop at the time, uh, Interactive Minds in Leighton Buzzard, I was like, what is this game? Like, when is it coming out? And they said it, it was coming out later on in 97, which, you know, it got delayed into summer 98. 
which fortunately for me means I could um, start laying deposits down on the game, you know, month after <laughs> month, like here's two quid, here's free, you know, just anything just to pay it off and just waiting for the week, you know, the weeks and the months to roll by until it finally came out. I did that with a lot of N64 games and uh, mm. it was kind of like, you know, it was hard work and, you know, but, but the seven month delay definitely helped me get it on, on day one. And how old were you in the summer of 98? Oh, I would have been 15. Yeah, 15. Hmm. Yeah, um, I think I have a I have a strong recollection of buying this game. It's one of those where I remember the exact trip in the shop mm. um, to get it. Um, so summer of 98, I was uh, recently turned 26, um, but I had no, still don't have no shame about playing cutesy platforms or anything. But actually, I didn't buy this day one. Um, I think, you know, it was uh, as N64 carts were at this point, it was probably uh, 50 quid most places mm. or give or take. Um, and... I'd enjoyed some of Rare's previous stuff, um, but it, you know this will seem weird to, to probably to those of you who already you know consider you know Rare as this being their absolute you know their 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 peak period, because for me I was as as much as I admired them on a technical level, um, things like Donkey Kong, Kong Country I'd completed one hundred and one percent and and enjoyed, but I always felt like they 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 were kind of they were sometimes needlessly punishing and t uh, sort of mechanically unsophisticated and things like that. I wasn't, you know, I, I liked them, but I didn't, I didn't love their games. Um, perhaps in quite the same way, I, I hadn't played Blast Core at this point. Uh, I'm trying to think what else I would have played of, of Rares in recent times. Um, yeah, Diddy Kong Racing. Hmm. Um, this was, I, I bought that at, at first and found it got horribly punishing later on. I did <laughs> go back and, and thoroughly finish that game off completely completely but I was a little I, I was worried that this game would be unfunny and um, and overly difficult however uh, I can't remember exactly what happened I think it was a combination of uh, glorious screenshots and strong reviews but I you know I did that thing of probably the day after it came out I think it was a Saturday morning uh, hot hot July uh, or June, July, Saturday morning, um, went down to my favoured local indie emporium of the time and picked it up, went home, uh, closed the curtains, played it all day, played it all weekend, played it all week and ended up playing it um, on and off for the next few years until all the secrets had finally come out. Um, eventually got rid of it when I got rid of my N64, but of course re-bought it on Xbox Live Arcade when that version came out. Mm. Um, we'll obviously reference that one as we go through. That arrived in 2008. Uh, at the end of 2008 uh, by 4J Studios who have since uh, also uh, performed port work on Perfect Dark and Minecraft uh, which has sold a ridiculous amount of copies on, <laughs> on Xbox 360 uh, both download and um, and in box format um, and of course Tui followed on, on XBLA shortly after and that finally allowed them to, to do the whole stop and swap stuff which we'll come on to. Now, so yes, as I say, I was 26, you guys were teenagers, or in Ryan's case, uh, actually a child when you were first playing this. Um, but it was one of those games, and still is to me, that evokes childhood nostalgia, even though I wasn't a child when I first played it. It immediately mm. felt like uh, a children's television program, cartoon, mm. or a storybook, or that combination of that comical world and the the nods to things like you know teddy bear's picnic in the wow. music and all that sort of thing it just sucked me straight into this world it had that really sort of comforting feeling of uh it was somewhere even though it you know it had its dangers and whatever it felt like somewhere safe and fun to play 
Mm. You can tell that it's trying to evoke the Saturday morning cartoon feeling vibe with um with the intro of the game itself. You know, I think if the if the N sixty four was a CD based console, it would have had some lyrics that sung along to the song, and yeah. you know, it would have described Banjo Kazooie as if it was a, a Saturday morning cartoon. You know that 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 intro that you see every time you turn the console on is you know it is just that it is you know um, that the game personified in in a minute and a half. It's it's beautiful. Yeah, and I think it still retains that aspect to it as well. I mean, I. I for this podcast, I picked up the XBLA version and replayed it, and I was uh, grinning like a moron for the uh, the beginning uh, section of that game because it is just so it is so uh, enthusiastic and the characters are so colourful, and it, I was f- thoroughly entertained by it. It's very uh, very fairy tale like, and a lot of those details also come through in the way that in the way that everything looks. It's very bright and very colourful, but there's a lot of like really interesting textures and stuff mm. on the on the walls there are faces in the walls and mm. little eyes throughout gruntilla's lair and just things that give it more of a fantastical element than even something like uh, uh like mario 64 which is also very kind of fairy tale like gruntilla is meant to be kind of a comical almost lovable villain mm. but at the same time there's a lot of really upbeat and happy and colorful stuff and there's also like a like an alternative side of the game that's like very like dark and grungy and um, industrial mechanical, like Clanker's Cavern, mm. and so it has like a really nice dichotomy that I think it uh, works that balance very well. A lot of the the sort of the humor about you know bogies and toilet humor and eating mm-hmm. nasty food is very reminiscent of the Raymond Briggs book Fungus a Bogeyman, which was a fixture on on kids' bookshelves um, in the eighties. But it was also it was amusing for for adults too because it, you know he was this character who had this uh, he was having a sort of philosophical existential midlife crisis, um, but it also had lots of bogey snot sick hmm. jokes in it, um, and it, it it reminded me it had a similar atmosphere to that. Um, one thing I remember, and it, it's still true now, uh, having been back to the XBLA version the last week or so, um, you can really see the development of the game as you're playing it. Mm. It's like it's like certainly I don't know in all cases, but it certainly looks like they built the uh, Spiral Mountain, the opening area, and the first level Mumbo's Mountain before anything else, because they look incredibly simplistic compared to what comes later even even now where obviously even on the the most what were the most sumptuous levels things like clanker's cavern um you know you can obviously you notice a lot of repeating textures and things like that now that wasn't an issue at the time just simply because it was a technical tour de force but now it it's more apparent that the those early stages look like they were they were done before Rare had even, you know, pushed the N64 as far as they were going to. But simple they might be, but I, I found it was really impressive, especially when you uh, get into the to the top of the Termite Hill uh, on Mumbo Mountain, and and the draw distance for the time, uh, mm. I thought was it was impressive. Mm. There was a real sense of scale of being, uh, it, you know, in a place in a in a part of a world that yeah, I don't think you really got from games at that at the time. It's kind of interesting because uh, back at the time, obviously, we, we in the West, uh, or well, I say we in the West, we in Europe got Super Mario 64 later. And obviously playing that now, you can still see some of the, the struggles that Nintendo had technically with the draw distance on sprite objects and things like that. Mm. Um, I do remember Banjo-Kazooie just being this, as well as being lush and having this gorgeous, vivid palette. And like you said, Ryan, all this sort of intrigue in the textures and stuff. 
Um, I do remember it be having a superior draw distance. I can't remember now playing it because I've been playing the XBLA version for crikey, you know, five plus years, um, which doesn't have any draw distance issues at all. Um, I can't remember if you could see things like the honeycombs mm. all the way across the level or whatever. Kind of. Uh, important items would remain on the map. So things like trees and stuff would fade in and out of the, uh, you, know, the, right. the you know, your line of view. But kind of things like honeycombs would, you know, would remain on the map for a certain amount of time, you know, a distance, I should say. Uh, so it's all about priority, I guess. Um, yeah. Obviously, yeah. Like you, you got your stuff like your gingos who make the noises. So they they weren't always in view, but you know you could hear them from a good uh, good while away with their whistles and help and stuff like that. But yeah, the characters are what bring Banjo Kazooie all together in that sort of you know happy uh, Saturday morning cartoon um, vibe that we're talking about because it has the um, the childlike nature of teaching you how to play and stuff. But then it's also got like an adult, adult undertone with its sort of rude British jokes that are, uh, you know, are sort of bubbling underneath Very the text. So, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of um, kind of like, you know, that Ren and Stimpy style thing where, and Adventure Time to bring it more recent in the fact that both generations can appreciate what the, what, you know, what the game slash TV show is showing you. It's right there, even in, in that opening hoedown, that na 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 which, you know, a, pra- a playground taunt. Um, just used as as a theme, and obviously the you know the witch speaks in rhyming couplets, and the, like Kazooie is this Breagull, uh, female Breagull character. Her insults are so kind of obvious that they're they're funny because they're not witty. Yeah, she she just you know she just calls the mole, bottles the mole you know worm breath and stuff <laughs> like that. There's just no you know, and then some somebody will come back with nest girl and it's, it's stuff like that which it it stay it was funny to me as a 26 year old it's still funny to me as a 42 year old um because it's so heavy-handed it's clearly not been through script writers you know any more than you know the internal people at rare um they've had fun with it and and it's kind of charming because it's so it it takes me back to those you know, the 8-bit computer game days of of the you know the UK scene in the 80s where there was no you know copy you know proofreading or or anything like that it was just you know you put in you put whatever you like in your game yeah and i think that rings true through pretty much all the characters as well there's no like um they're, they're all consistently weird is what i'm trying to say like clungo is just like he's straight out of left field and obviously he's meant to, he's meant to you know pair up with gontilda because they look kind of similar you know they're green they're, they're sort of warty they're sort of like disgusting uh, but like all the characters are just absolutely bizarro, but you know consistently so. So you've got like a toilet who'll speak to you and logo, logo, yeah, and like you know, they've, all, they've all got O's <laughs> at their end of the name and stuff like that. And it's it is just so completely bizarre. But it kind of sums up the '90s almost, you know, uh, pitch perfect. It was, yeah, I, I couldn't really see a game like this being made nowadays. You know, from scratch, it would kind of it kind of be it kind of be a bit different and. It would be focus tested now and, yeah. and and smoothed. I think it would be smoothed over and. So you know, like the, the crude, the crude on the nose jokes and stuff. I, I don't think like I don't feel like they'd exist in today's script writing and stuff like that. I, I do really appreciate that. You know, like each character, even though they talk in like you know Simlish or Banjoish, I don't know what it is, but lilac. They, yeah, <laughs> lilac. They 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 have their own personalities within the text, and you, you sort of know what kind of vibe to expect from each and every character when you're talking to them. Like, but Mumbo Jumbo is quite quite you know um basic in his in his language he's very sort of tribal because you know that's what he is he, he's a shaman and he'll, he'll shapeshift you into different animals but then you know when you're speaking to the the big bad um enemy gruntilda she'll rhyme uh insults at you and stuff like that it's just yeah it's just um, a work of, of of art i guess and anything was fair game to start talking to as well be it the 
musical note collectibles or, mm, yeah. you know, they'd, they'd slap a pair of eyes on it and all of a sudden it's a sentient character that's uh, willing to have a conversation explaining what it is. I mentioned this before. Um, there was this, uh, in the 16-bit era, there was a game, uh, a British developed game called uh, Harlequin by Gremlin Graphics. And they had within that, it, it was a kind of weird um, surrealistic platformer, but it had a, a world in it which was called Super Cutesy Brothers. And it was a pastiche of uh, Japanese you know, Japanese developed platformers and everything had eyes on it. And of course, it had the effect of making it a little bit weird and creepy. Um <laughs> But it was exactly this joke. And th this is where Rare have kind of, they're almost kind of ribbing their corporate paymasters with this game in, in a lot of ways, I think. If you, you know, if you look back at, uh, you know, the Mario games, obviously we've done podcasts on, um, you know, uh, elements of the scenery do have eyes in and things like that. And and it's just like a, it's just like a crazy extension of, of that. And then, yeah, they've got, instead of kind of little, you know, just little black dashes for eyes, they've got, they've got big goggly, like comedy joke shop eyes with, with boogly irises and pupils in. And, uh, but somehow if you just keep slapping that on everything, it becomes a joke unto itself. Yeah. And then of course, uh, Conker's Bad Fur Day pushed that even further, uh, making yes. fun of that whole aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, there, there may well be a, a conquer cana rinse someday. Uh, a very interesting tale to be told there. One thing I wanted to ask you, Ryan, as an American, mm. um, now also you're only eight years old, I realise, uh, when you first played this, but um, some of the humour does, to a Brit, seem very British. It's a British game from a British studio. Mm -hmm. um, lots of the gags are, you know, it's not exactly popular culture references, but no. things like the, like, I don't know how well known the Teddy Bears Picnic song is, is in America, for instance, which is obviously a key part of the Hub World melody. Um, did you feel like this was... Did, did, were you aware of any of this or was it just, you know, here's this fun, cute game with a magical world and funny characters? Um, you know, even going back to it now, it has a like a very British sense of humor as I've come to like understand kind of genre tropes and stuff like that. But, yeah. uh, you know, Conker's Bad Fur Day was explicitly like, here are some very British jokes, whereas mm. Banjo-Kazooie was more sort of like written in a like British sensibility. Mm. Um, and I think it's kind of a good way to write comedy is to throw the jokes out there and never make your audience feel excluded if they don't get it. You know, if they don't if they don't connect with the joke entirely, then, you know, don't make them feel like they even missed anything like, you know, they wouldn't even notice. And that's kind of how I was with Banjo-Kazooie. I hadn't heard of uh, the Teddy Bears picnic until many years right. later when I read about that connection thought so yeah although to be yeah. fair i didn't realize that was the underlying theme until you just mentioned it leon so <laughs> i think i think yeah. it's it worms its way into to your brain and creates a familiarity which i think harkens back to that uh you know that saturday morning kids cartoon comfort zone thing yeah. we talked about at the beginning but i, I honestly hadn't thought, hadn't realized that until you mentioned yeah i mean it branches off fairly quickly but yeah, yeah. when i was 15 i heard it uh you know what i was trundling around the uh Granted, I was like, and I was like, this sounds like Teddy Bear's Picnic. And, yeah. but then I, I wasn't, you know, overly familiar with, you know, copyright law and stuff like that. So I was like, so why does it suddenly tail off like halfway through? <laughs> I, I never truly understood the reason behind it. And obviously like maybe someone owns that tune and they couldn't. I don't know. I, yeah. I, I don't know the name of the artist, but obviously when, when I was a kid, that was still played on the radio a lot on children's radio, mm. you know, and it was, you know, it's performed in this very, very posh English voice. We'll come back onto the music because there's, there's a lot to talk about, mm. obviously. Um, let's first talk a little bit about the bear and the bird 
Um, obviously, uh, we've we've talked about what Kazooie's like. Uh, Banjo is a kind of uh, bumpkin bear, mm. um, but obviously he doesn't actually speak um, outside of text boxes and his trademark uh, lilath lilatis noise, um, which Ryan does a fine impression of. <laughs> uh, now, I suppose uh, a key difference between you know, it's it's hard to actually go back to thinking about what other three D platformers have been around at this time. But I get I thinking about Super Mario sixty four and maybe Crash Bandicoot, which wasn't really a three D platform mm, yeah. in the same way. But things like that, um, you kind of got you had your move set to start with. You learned how to use them as you went along, but they were all there. Whereas Banjo Kazooie, when you first start, all you can do is walk and a simple jump. You have to actually learn mm. all your moves over the course of pretty much half the game. Yeah, and it's kind of like the the Metroidvania to use that phrase that people you know lo- love and harken back to when they want to play like a new game. It really was like if I wanted to get this, it it really was that kind of thing. If I wanted to get this Gruntilda switch in Click Clock Wood, I'll have to go and get a move that I may have missed in Freezy Easy Peak, for example. And um, mm. you know, it really was not to the extreme that Tui does it. I think Tui, you know, we'll talk about it later on, but it goes too far in that direction. But this kind of gets it right but yeah um when it comes to the characters like you know bottles is the guy who teaches you these moves and he's you know he's called bottles because he's got stupidly thick glasses on his head and and you know and, and in banjo too his um his cousin or brother is called jam jars which is another reference to you know a similar theme yes and yeah there are a lot all the characters in this game you know they have like a funny funky name uh you know based on their appearance stuff like that. Like the, the big gorilla in mumbo's mountain is called something like conga for you know an obvious Chimpy, Chimpy the Chimp, is that's that like that? Uh, he's the little one. He's the, he, he's the one who wants the orange that you throw yeah, the orange yeah. to. But the big gorilla sitting on top of the tree is called something like Conga or Conga no, like, or something. I, like I that. just always like. I just always thought it was great. Like, what should we call this chimp? Uh, chimpy, Chimpy. Yeah, why not? You know, it kind of Chimpo? seems like of obviously lazy. Like they they know it's lazy. Yeah, and yeah. it's funny. Yeah, yeah. They, therefore it becomes funny. But at the same time, I think. Do they know it's that fun? Like, you know, do they know it's lazy or are they actually like seriously deciding what to call this chimp? Chimpy. But yeah, it's, it's hard to say. <laughs> but yeah, the, all the, the the characters in that in the game are, like I said earlier, they've all got their own sort of classic kind of, um, you know, British comedy vibe. Like Kazooie, for example, you know, she is on the nose. And w- w- you know, when you fire an egg out of, you know, her backside, she will make a little blow off noise. And it is, it, it gets me every time. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Um, but on the subject of of, of the moves, you know, I, I find going back to it, it's pre- it's pretty. Uh, it feels quite debilitating starting the game with nothing. Um, you can elect to not have tutorials. Uh, I think uh, you can mm. elect not to do the tutorial mm-hmm. section. And um, but um, what's strange is, although although it feels quite um, yeah, it's, it feels quite handholdy now to go back to it. Um, I guess this whole fully three D explorathon platformer was a relatively new thing at this point. It was a very new thing, really. And actually, even playing it now, uh, it's there's that they cram that much onto the controller that there are moments where you you know you end up doing either the the the, um, the talon trot the the fast run, which is generally how you'll get around once you've got it because it's much faster and grippier than the normal uh, banjo walk. Um, but that can turn into a crouch jump or, or or whatever if you if you get the controller you know if you start wrestling the controller buttons in the wrong order. Um, 
and obviously on in the XBLA version, they've put the um, the sort of uh, I can't remember what it's called, but the Golden Feather Invincibility mm-hmm. Run. They've put that they've mapped that onto the right stick because I think I guess it used to be on the right C button, mm. um, and it, that just feels you know it just feels slightly strange to activate a move by holding down a trigger and then tab tabbing right. It's not a problem, but it just makes you realise that I've played this game so much now that I. I kind of do it all fairly much intuitively, but but playing playing back through those early levels again, it's like yeah, it does throw quite a lot of different stuff at you and quite a lot of controls to remember. Mm. It does. And a point that you made earlier, Darren, about the uh, Metroidvania aspect to it, I was actually going back to it, disappointed that they didn't do more of that. Uh, yeah. Because other than the running shoes on Freezy Peak, where you have to go back and uh, race the bear again, I was kind of mm. playing through the the levels. Uh, you know, collecting everything before moving yes. on to the next one, and I, and I would have kind of wanted to get to a few points where you know a, a jiggy was just out of reach, or I couldn't collect all the the musical notes because I had to learn a new move and go back to it. And I didn't think they they did enough of that really. And on the point about the the uh, invincibility thing, every time I was crouching and then went to adjust the camera, that would hmm. start. So I burnt through a lot of golden feathers that way. You have a little bit of liberty with the order that you decide to do the levels in, especially if you collect all the notes and collect all of the jiggies and can unlock some of the note doors past where you are. Or, uh, yeah, you don't really come to a roadblock until Gobi's Valley and Freeze Easy Peak in which you need a move Mm. from the other's level to be able to complete it entirely. And so, yeah, those you can't beat entirely 100% your first time through without doing the other one first. I found it quite strange because um, playing it back in 98 with no access to the internet, uh, I played it very differently. Um, mm. I didn't I didn't know the solutions to, uh, you know, half the jiggies on half the levels. So I was, you know, it was a very different experience diving in, doing what you can do, finding what you can find, um, a huge amount of fun, you know, exploring these uh, imaginative worlds and working out how to traverse them and, and, and avoid dying. Um, it was, a, it, I found it a lot more challenging back then. I'm sure it was a combination of factors, the, the slower frame rate of the N64 version, the lack of familiarity with using an analog stick and, and so on. Um, but also just not knowing a lot of the the logic to the game, the way they'd squirreled certain jiggies mm. away and particularly the honeycomb pieces. Whereas this time I've been snaffling the extra life bar as I've been going along. That makes the game a heck of a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I would have been playing it in 98 all, all the way up to when I... F- properly properly finished it when they released uh some of the sandcastle secrets like or when they were discovered by the rare witch project like two years later Mm. i would have been diving into a level you know collecting some jiggies then swapping out exploring the hub some more looking for things whereas this time i've been doing it almost you know in total sequence you know um and and that's also fun um and you know i've hopped out occasionally to to do something else or you know remember to say leave mad monster mansion as a pumpkin to go and find one of the cheeto books uh, in the in the the hub world it's i mean oh yeah another thing is just that hub world is so big that even though i know every area on it and now this is partly my brain because i'm really bad at creating 3d maps in my brain but i know every room in it but i still forget how it all links up <laughs> yeah. it, it's it is a really big area with a lot of stuff squirreled away i can't rem- i can't remember uh what the cauldrons i don't know what they do but i don't know where they take me every time i play this game i've played yep. this game 
endless amount of times. I don't know how many yeah. times. But every time I, a cauldron turns red, I'm like, where the, where's, where's that? Where, where does that go? And then I, it's always yeah. a head scratcher. So I never actually end up using the cauldrons. Um, the, this most recent playthrough, I was a bit more savvy to it all. But back in the day, I was just like, well, okay, yeah, I've, I've got a, a brief glimpse of where that cauldron is. It's just a room <laughs> that looks vaguely like Gruntilda's Lair, which could be anywhere. Um, you know, sometimes there is a cauldron in Gobby's Valley, which makes it a bit obvious with its Egyptian theme and, you know, sandy walls. But, my, you know, my, mostly those cauldrons are just like in a room somewhere. Yeah, I think the confusion with that has, for me, has always been that the first cauldron you find is not the first one that you match up as a pair. So I think that always confused me because the the first shortcut that you create hmm. does not involve the very first cauldron that you can come across. I thought the lack of signposting for for some of the, the levels and and the hub world as well was quite mm. refreshing going back to it and being used to modern games which you know flash up every five minutes mm. to say you know you should be doing this or you should be looking here they they yeah. dump you in the world essentially and just say you know have fun go explore see what you can find and i remember on mumbo's mountain the uh, the very first well one of the first jiggies when you go up to um, mumbo's village and there's the the ring of houses or huts mm-hmm. around the outside yeah yeah, yeah. And, and i just you know i just I he completely ignored that and never got the jiggy there, and it was I had to go online to find out that you had to smash the huts and yeah. and it was a you know if, as a younger person playing it for the first time, I probably would have been in that mind to experiment with everything, but there mm. hadn't been a part yet that told me you know you can jump on things and smash them, which is which is what you used to nowadays i think yeah the the crazy thing is um that I remember playing this in ninety eight and obviously I've been already been gaming for a long time. And I was thinking how handholdy this game was compared to like Ultimate Play the Game, the same software houses earlier games. You know, in the eighties they they told you nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you had a cassette inlay that told you the controls and that was it. Um and so Banjo Kazooie with its you know, with its little character telling you how to do moves and all that, it, and and you know, the way that there were cutscenes showing you where where a door had opened and things like that, mm. that was like giving the game away. But now, <laughs> after another sixteen years of, of you know, big flashing arrows and, and um tutorials in every uh in every for every <laughs> thing, it feels really like Brian said. I've, I totally agree. Really refreshing. Like mm. obviously, maybe I'd be more frustrated if I'd never played it before, um, because I wouldn't even have a clue about some of these solutions. But it's I'm uh, having been having a, a lot of fun just going back to these levels and trying stuff out. I'd completely forgotten that you could smash the glowing windows on the mansion. Mm, for instance yeah. so i was just looking at those thinking well i've seen glowy windows in other uh, houses <laughs> on freeze easy peak and things like that um so i'd never thought to peck them um but yeah then you've got a whole load of rooms and you've got some essential areas in there to to finish the level 100 percent and, and stuff like that that's kind of the primary intrigue of the game is just hunting down secrets i mean essentially all that the game is is just exploring the level until you find everything it does feel like an adventure uh in just the uh, a right enough way for me like you'll get past mumbo's mountain when you know which is just, it's quite obvious that one because it's a big sort of mini well it's a big mini mountain it's a bit of an oxymoron but yeah there's a, there's a mountain there you go into and it takes you to mumbo's mountain but treasure trove cove you know further on through the layer it kind of teases it like you'll see sand on the floor just before the entrance to that you know area with the treasure chest and you're like okay so they're sort of linking it together you know thematically and then later on you'll see clanker's cabin and to get there, you have to go through like a sewer pipe and then activate like a sort of a, a mini puzzle with, uh, you know, involving sewers mm. and stuff like that. So it's, it's a really clever way of linking all the uh, levels together and making it feel like a, a cohesive world. 
And there's little clues uh, sometimes in the audio as well. Mm. So the, the music remixes into mm. uh, instruments relevant. So you get the sort of... Uh, kind of like, like a sea shanty, yeah, sort of piratey type music for Treasure Trove Cove and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, stuff like that. Mm. So as I say, um, obviously some of us have been back to the uh, Xbox 360 version. There are uh, three ways of p- probably playing this game, two of them legal. Now, the, the 4J, I think, did a, did a pretty fine job on this. It's not um, comprehensive in that it's not, you know, it's not like a, a remake, but um, everything is in higher resolution. Mm. Um, the frame rate's more, uh, is higher generally, although it does still have some significant slowdown in places. Yeah, it can do. Um, I don't know if that's just the base code or, or that it, you know, it's testament to what Rare were doing on the N64. Um, the music ha- hasn't been altered in any way. It just, it's just a very clear sampling of it. It probably sounds a lot crisper than it did on the N64, which famously had no dedicated sound chip, remember? That's what Grant Kirkhope was working with. And uh, overall, I think, you know, uh, I think the further you get in, the, the kind of, and, and the longer you spend with it, uh, the more pleasing on the eye it, it, it becomes. But it, I can't express how amazing I thought this game looked back in 98. Uh, it clearly doesn't look amazing to me now in the same way as it did then now it's kind of attractive um you know what what they've done i don't know what playing the n64 version would would be like obviously blockier and jerkier um but i i I think you know the design holds up in especially in the 360 version yeah playing the 360 version it kind of it makes you feel like how you remember the game as opposed to yes. making it look completely new. Um, yeah. I know Ocarina of Time 3D on 3DS, you know, it actually looks better than the N64 one, but the Banjo-Kazooie on Xbox Live Arcade, like, you know, it kind of feels like how you remember it back in the day. And to me, that's as, that, you know, that's as good a job as any, really. Like, you know, that you couldn't have done, other than, you know, changed every single asset in the game, you couldn't have done a better yeah. job than that. I had wished they'd fix the uh, camera. Uh, right, because I don't have really... I mean, there's there's a few moments where it plays tricks with the camera, as in it will hide things outside of, of a fixed camera view, which is a you know, very old-school um, design trick. You know, mm. there, there's a Jinjo shouting at you off the screen, and you don't know worry. But overall, I, I, I've had surprisingly few problems with the camera because you've got full control of it on the right stick. Now. And I wonder whether I was making too much use of it, though, in the, in the sense that it, you know, it was a game kind of... Back then, cameras was felt like they were designed to be sort of left alone, and with you know you'd only make minor adjustments to them. But I was thinking, mm. you know, in bits where I'd get caught in the corner, say, or yeah. if I was swimming in 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 a body of water, I would find myself just going backwards and forwards in the in that area as I kept trying to adjust the camera and it kept bouncing around. It does have its moments. You're quite. Yeah, right. I don't remember yeah. it being that frustrating the first time through, though. I have to say, they did make a few changes to the camera in the XBLA version. Um, I noticed going left and right uh, on the XBLA version is uh, kind of a smooth, like we would expect from a modern game. Um, whereas you can shift the camera in intervals mm. on the old game, which I believe, which was the same way that Mario 64 did it. Very similar. Yeah. 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 The, the camera in this, uh, replaying it recently, the camera definitely frustrated me, um, especially when the camera goes fixed, kind of like Resident Evil. You know, um, the prime example is Treasure Trove Cove. When you get into the, the ship where you break the panels and you get underneath and there's the camera sat in the top right corner of the room, for example, and you're, you know, you're watching Bird and Bear from a fixed position. 
it just it just annoys the hell out of me because you can't really get a good sense of where depth. the mumbo tokens are, where the notes are, because yeah, depth yeah. Them, because it doesn't it's, it's not three D at that point; it's a two D. Yeah, there's not enough shadow and lighting mm. um, for you know for our modern sensibilities to to really make that. So you have to kind of assume sometimes that the notes. Are, I mean, things like the the sprite assets, things like the notes, have all been sharpened up quite quite nicely compared mm. to the N64 version but yeah you have to kind of know where they are like they're generally at the bottom of wherever you are so you end up kind of you end up kind of deliberately swimming as low as possible and then sort of going around the edge to mm. collect things and I suppose it's stuff that I can't it's one of those things that I'm so used to it now that I, I kind of just deal with it mm-hmm. whereas if if I was recommending this that people go out and get this game now on, on 360 they might find this stuff a lot more frustrating than I did and to be fair there was only one uh, uh, of the uh, collectibles that I couldn't get uh, because of the camera and that was the time you know the 10 second time challenge on bubble gloop swamp where you have to yes. Yes. run over the the, the thin <laughs> tiny wedge sticking yeah. out and oh. I, I maybe it's just my lack of platforming skills but i need the camera behind me and i needed to and every time i just tried to adjust it would just you know straight in the swamp. so there's a couple of little secrets that um well one of them isn't a secret there is in it doesn't work everywhere but you can hold the right bumper i think it is so that the camera stays behind you mm. in uh and it stays locked onto you um, and another uh, secret that we were talking about before we started recording is the fact that, that I don't think this is mentioned anywhere, but if you use the bumpers while swimming, you get a much, much, much tighter turning circle, mm. which is uh, which eases a lot of the frustration. Um, there are some handy moves that the game doesn't tell you as well that you kind of, I think they weren't put in there by design, but you can sort of manipulate the moves that you've got already to your benefit. So if you want to, if you're on top of the lighthouse in Treasure Trove Cove, for example, and you just want a shortcut down to the bottom, you can do the peck move right at the last minute to stop your, yeah. you know, to break your fall. There are quite yes. a few things like that. And where Brian just said the, the little tiny ledge, you know, you struggled to get it in 10 seconds. Uh, you can sort of manipulate the peck move after doing a talon trot really fast across it. So you jump as far as you can and then peck your way to the end. And, you know, you yeah. can sort of break the game in that way. And, yeah, I mean, that's all the sort of techniques that we saw people coming up with for Super Mario 64 and, and, and going further with and exploiting glitches and stuff. But this is another game that if you look on uh, videos online, you'll see people playing it in uh, in extraordinary fashion. Like Brian, I find those bits with very, very thin bits of platform yeah. the most the most challenging and frustrating. But again, as I found going back to for, for Kane and Rince to Super Mario 64, um, I found that uh, another 15, 16, 17 years of playing with analog sticks has meant that I, I'm not as bad hmm. at those bits as I was because I'm I'm playing with analog sticks less like they're a digital D-pad now. <laughs> and um, I'm happier to be patient and just, you know, push the stick gently in the right direction. I've got better thumb controller than, than I had back then. Having said that, I still fell off. There's part of the hub world where you have to... Um, uh, you're over a big room full of lava uh, near the entrance to... Mad Monster Mansion, and um, I still fell off there. Oh, once. yeah, the light sourcing kicks in and out, doesn't it? And it yes. sort of really puts you kind of, well, literally on edge of, you know, over, over a pit of lava. And the camera's not great there either. So you do end up just plummeting to your death, especially when you're the pumpkin trying to get into the little hole at the other side. It goes from a locked camera angle to a free camera angle, like right in the middle of one of those yeah. platforms <laughs> you're balancing on. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, obviously that's a challenge because when you get to the end of that little tricky, snaky platform, you get a Cheeto page. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not supposed to be a walk in the park, but at the same time, you kind of wish it would give the player a bit more, you know, leniency in the camera control. Tellingly, I think it's still the case that um, all the bits, 
of platforming that Rare Rare's designers really wanted to be challenging involve notches in the scenery where you have to jump out and do the double jump and go back into a notch that's slightly higher up. Click Clock Wood uh, is the kind of the last um, full uh, sort of uh, sub-level, isn't it? Mm. And that one's got some really, really testy bits of double flutter jumping, I as I recall. I, I hate it. I hated it back then and I hate it now. It's kind of, it's just... It's just a little bit too much of a frustration, like especially in Clock Clock Wood when you're halfway up that tree and you fall all the way down to the bottom, potentially yeah. losing your life. It's just a, it's just a, it's just a little bit too much. Um, yeah, it's it is, it's just a bit wonky because that, that that double jump's fine if you're going in one direction, but to sort of 180 it in midair, it just oh, it's not great. And there's just a little sponginess to the response mm. that existed then and still exists now. I think it never like it does respond. It's one of those things um, where you have to kind of trust to it. But if you get the timing ever so slightly wrong on some of those sections, you'll end up where Banjo's feet are just too low to make the ledge, mm. and then you and then you end up falling all the way back down. There's not even a. a a sure way to get back onto the platform you've just left pretty much and yeah those, those bits I, I still find kind of annoying but again I still think I'm probably slightly better at them than I was back in 1998 <laughs> which is weird I think overall though the game controls just beautifully it, it feels very nice to run around these worlds and mm. all of your jumps feel very precise and um, I don't know it's, it's such a pleasure to to play Oh, definitely. Like, you know, there's so much, there's so many moves in this game that the fact that they made them feel all linked together and sort of, well, cohesive, I guess. Like, it kind of feels like a, like these characters are meant to do these moves. So, you know, you start off with quite a basic, you know, run, jump, and maybe a roll attack. But then that sort of evolves into a peck attack. And then later on, you're jumping on green pads, which again feel like an extension of what you were doing before. And the way the moves sort of evolve, it, it just feels really natural. And like, you know, these characters should be doing these things. And, Stuff like that, and one thing I do appreciate about Tui, uh, you know, talking about moves, is that you know all these moves from the off. Like you, the, the moves you learn in Kazooie are there into straight away, and then you 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 know you learn more bizarrely. You do actually earn a lot more in Tui. So yeah, the move set is completely, it, yeah, it is great. Uh, you know, from the back the back flip to the kind of like the butt um, slam move. You know, it, it just feels like those characters should be doing those moves. I wouldn't disagree with Ryan in that it is fun to to move around the world, but I did. I think the only criticism I would have is that I I found the control was certainly with banjo just a bit too slidey. I don't know, mm. and, and I often found myself mm. um, falling off the ledge as I sort of squeeze the left trigger to do a uh, to do a flutter jump, um, and then I would just end up yeah. you know, just sliding across the across the surface. But you know, the, a very minor frustration in what was, you know, otherwise an enjoyable experience. It's mostly minor for me, those frustrations up until Rusty Bucket Bay, um, when it was actually the platforming inside the ship in that level that stopped me finishing this game properly at the time, because there's a couple... It was the timed puzzle, right? With the fans. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was... Yeah, that's that was a, a proper rare rareware moment in <laughs> yeah. there. Uh, there's you know where you yeah so you have to uh, stop or slow some machinery down yeah. um, so you can jump through these uh, on these very precipitous uh, rotating mechanical platforms and there are blades and there are things which swoosh and knock you off and yeah it's um, a bit of a horror that one I think I I died a lot of times. It's probably one of those where I haven't got back that far in my 360 playthrough where I'll get to it and I'll do it like on my second go or something. Yeah. But no, it's still hard. 
Okay. He's <laughs> still, yeah, he's still hard. And there's a button you can press to stop the fans outside the ship in Rusty Bucket Bay. And you're like, yes. I've got like 20 seconds to get out of here up a ladder that's quite long. You know, it's not snaky get along, but oh, it's yeah. pretty long. <laughs> and then you have to get through these fans, which are in oily water, which takes away half your, um, your bubble. Well, no, it doubles the speed that your bubbles, uh, you know, uh, dissip- yes. dissipate. It is ridiculous. Yeah. And it, like you say, it's a rare wear moment. It is mental. Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm sure probably almost everybody found that jiggy the 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 most testy in the game i can't think of another moment that was that was tougher um, um, mr vile uh fighting that crocodile without the speedy shoes is a metroidvania mm. moment i learned the hard way <laughs> oh. like, let's let's collect the yumblies okay um this crocodile i've beaten him twice now mr vile um how do i how do i get faster it took me hours as a 15 year old to realize that i need to go and find the speedy shoes and come back as a as a as you know as a baby crocodile you're gonna hate me <laughs> I did it. I did it completely without the speed. Yeah, <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> yeah, I saw them there, and I was like, "Oh, can you wear speedy shoes as a crocodile?" <laughs> oh no! I was thinking. I was thinking, no, you can't. Can you? You can't. Normally, it's true, isn't it? If you're a walrus or a tick or or any of those, if you go up to a um, a, a normal banjo kazooie collectible, mm. um, you can't interact with it. No. You can't interact with it. So I just assumed, well, it, of course it makes sense because you can't even go into the crocodile, the crocodile face as a, as Banjo-Kazooie. Yeah, so through the nostrils. I should have made that, but it is, uh, it is entirely possible to do it without the speedy shoes. Well, thanks for that. Thank you very much. <laughs> Another thing I wanted to uh, confirm, whether this is my memory or not, um, I can't remember how it how it did it with uh, collecting notes in the original N64 version, because it feels like it's easier now, like you can just collect them and it, it remembers. Yes. Yeah. In the original game, there was a curse that Gruntilda put on every level, and it could have been a memory restriction from the N64, yes. but yeah. once you left the level or if you died, it would reset your note count and it would right. kind of, it would keep a high score. And uh, for the maximum number of notes that you had achieved each time you entered the level. And so you pretty much had to get all 100 notes in the level in one run without dying, without yeah. leaving the level, which has been relaxed yeah. in the Xbox 360 version. Sure. It's kind of like the old uh, the, the Super Mario 64 coins in the original version. Um, but yes, now you can drop in and drop out and it will remember exactly 
down to the last note which ones you have and haven't collected. Um, of course, there there can be a flip side to that, which is that uh, if you've missed one in a funny place, um, you'll have the same experience as I had with the later Donkey Kong 64 oh. with one red banana mm. that I never got. I got everything else in that game but one <laughs> red banana, and I still don't know where it was. Um, I don't much care, but obviously it bothers <laughs> me slightly. <laughs> Yeah, it's for, you mentioned on Twitter the other day, uh, Des playing Click Clock Wood again, that there's a there's a kind of... A, I mean, this game is full of secret nooks and crannies. That same buzz that you got from playing even, you know, like the 2D Marios or whatever, of finding a little uh, a secret hole, hidey hole to go in. Mm. This game's got tons of those. Um, so, so many, in, in fact, that it's 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 weird that, that like the, the painting you need to activate Click Clockwood is right back near the start of the game. And by the time you get to that point, you could easily have forgotten where it was. Mm. But within Click Clockwood, uh, there's a bit where you go into a, a beaver's dam and there's something really, really sweet and cosy about diving into the water and then coming out in this beaver's yeah. uh, winter home and, and you you mentioned that saying it still feels like you're kind of it's, it kind of reminds me of um you know looking back recently kind of it reminds me of a uh, fez in that weird way like fez has just um you know secrets everywhere and intentionally so but yeah banjo kazooie and click wood in particular you know because it's this it's the same level redesigned in different um seasons you know spring winter summer autumn uh going into Naughty's layer, uh, you know, room, not really a layer, is it? It's uh, going in there in a season where you shouldn't really be going in. It kind of feels, well, naughty to use a, a horrible pun again. <laughs> but yeah, you know, you kind of feel like you're, uh, you, you found this little secret hole in the, in the world and you kind of feel like it's yours. I, I was the same way with um, Nabnut's room. You know, you, you go into his room and he's got some wicked music, but then you find that you can smash the window above his room and there's like a pool of water just in there where, where one of the acorns is. And I was like, I found this. And you genuinely, you kind of like, well, the fact that I remember it to this very day, you know, holds, um, you know, it's a testament to just how well that world was designed. Any other favorite level memories, people? Anything that has to do with the Haunted Mansion in the video game is always one of my favorite things. And so the Mad Monster Mansion just really embodied the just everything that I love about Haunted Mansion type games, the kind of mystery, yeah. the kind of illusions and the intentionality of the level itself having kind of a malicious will of its own, hmm. uh, just really um, embodied all the kind of secrets you would expect to see in a Haunted Mansion type level. And just it's kind of it remains one of the definitive Haunted Mansions in video games, to my estimation. Yeah, it reminds me of um, the I think I've mentioned this on a podcast before. I can't remember which one, but uh, Jan Pienkowski or Pienkowski's uh, Haunted House pop up book, which I had as a child. Um, very much that sort of, again, playing on children's sort of uh, fascination with with the uh, with the the safely gruesome, if if you will. Um, I love the use of. We'll, we'll come on to music, as I say, but I love the use of sort of pseudo theremin in the um, in the haunted house music, which gives it that uh, instantly gives it that spooky fifties mm. eerie mm. sci fi horror film. The organ and oh, it's all wonderful. Yeah, green green translucent ghosts, which are redolent of Slimer in Ghostbusters. Mm. Um, but yes, it just reminds me of Halloween kids shows from from TV. Um, yeah, uh, Brian. Which what were well, you? Well, I was gonna actually going to say Mad Monsters Mansion, but uh, I had a second favourite. But in case that that one was already taken, and I really like Freezy Peak. I love yeah. the, the the verticality mm. of it. I think, um, and 
Gobi Valley is probably a, a, a similar example, but it it was the one of those levels where you could really use uh, Kazooie's flight abilities to to full advantage and going right to the top of the of the giant snowman, and then of course jumping on the sled and sliding down and landing on. Boggy the bear. Boggy. Mm. Boggo. Boggy. <laughs> uh, it, it was great. And, and it had that kind of Christmassy winter wonderland feel to it with the, with the Christmas tree and the and the presents and the lights and all that. So, yeah, it was a, definitely a favourite of mine. Yeah, I'm a total sucker for Christmassy worlds and uh, Rare did some did some classics in Diddy Kong and this. Uh, and uh, I absolutely love the music. With Darren, favourite world level? Uh, favorite level it's going to be uh, freeze easy peak as well just because um i i spent no amount of time looking through that that ice wall looking at the spinning ice key which we'll no Mm. doubt talk about later (laughs) on but like that alludes to another sort of um area in a level where i felt like i truly discovered something even though i hadn't like you know the you know that kind of stuff was born from the where which product but yeah it was kind of uh freeze easy peak is definitely uh, had a massive influence on me because I, I, you know, my na- my alias before Desmond was uh, indeed Boggy. So yeah, Freeze Easy Peak <laughs> is just it's just great. Like the, the Christmas tree bit at the start when you you know you you're, you're aggressively taking down these um these oh, I don't know, don't know what they're called uh, but you're trying to save the Twinklies to get to the Christmas tree and then you climb in the Christmas tree to get some presents for Boggy's kids. Mm. The way that level seamlessly links into itself, like it, it kind of just feeds into itself and everything you do knocks onto the next bit of the level and it is really well designed and i i, I genuinely don't believe that as a as a level better in that game than freeze easy peak i still uh anyone else is it just me i'm 42 i still find those snowmen a bit creepy. yeah no, they are oh the ones that saw they make a sawing noise don't they when they when they get their snowballs yeah. it's, it doesn't sound like they're compacting the snowball it sounds like they're trying to saw your face off it's really <laughs> odd <laughs> actually that's one of the reasons i had a lot of problems with freeze easy peak as a um I guess even still that I think it's a marvelously designed level. Like it was, you know, the verticality, like we had mentioned before, the separate areas that all feel connected and even the climbing up the snowman scarf with the golden mm, notes yeah. on the yellow patches and the yeah, red feathers yeah. on the red patches. Like there's something fun about collecting those, but yeah, I find the, uh, the snowmen to be a huge turnoff to that level. Like they're, mm. they're just kind of mean. Yeah. They're, they're like, they have these like nasty evil laughs and they are always throwing snowballs at you and so you never feel safe to just like stand in one place and look around you always feel like you have to kind of be like on the move which didn't really feel like it gelled quite right with the theme of the level which is a little bit more like peaceful and upbeat and almost kind of encourage you to take your time i i think you're absolutely right but i think i i what i did when i played it uh today was um i just made it my mission to get rid of them all on the first time absolutely. they don't regenerate unless you come go back in the level so um take them all out there's there's a honeycomb and a ginger i think mm. or, or a, sw- a switch to yeah, be had switch. anyway so there's reasons to do it mm-hmm. but yeah similarly like actually the ground uh, area of that level is not friendly because you've got all this water that hurts you because it's cold which is only safe when you're in walrus form um and uh, and the snowmen but yeah once once you take all those out then it becomes this more celebratory mm-hmm. christmasy mm-hmm. um thing and yeah climbing inside a christmas tree is kind of like a 
even if you never had literally that fantasy as a child, the idea of going inside a Christmas tree with inside the lights mm. and, and all that sort of thing is something so appealing about that. Yeah. Uh, speaking about the, the, the snowman who attack you and, you know, you retaliating, that move isn't the easiest move to attack with. No, you kind of have to line up the the head of Banjo and Kazooie and then sort of aim it a little bit, but it's not great in any stretch of the imagination. And I can't, I can't count the amount of times I've missed and bopped my head into a wall and lost a life. It was, <laughs> it's, it, yeah. you, you kind of feel cheated. And you're just like, oh man, I wish there was just a tiny reticule on screen. You know, kind of a bit of a crosshair. And I, and I know that wouldn't... Re- or just a lock on, yeah, just, just an automatic. But bit, bit yeah. easier just to make you feel like you were more in control of that situation than what, what, than what you're not. It's a little bit of aftertouch to use uh, burnout terms, but yeah, it's, uh, it's still pretty imprecise. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the subject of collectibles, now um, it became a it became a joke, even to the point that uh, Rare lampooned themselves at the start of uh, Banjo Kazooie Nuts and Bolts. And for me, the level of collectibles in Banjo Kazooie was absolutely spot on. Um, it were it was the games that they they did after this, or some of them, not all of them. Um, some of the games they did after this uh, overdid it. Uh, it was like, well, collecting things is fun. Let's collect more things. That'll be more fun, right? Whereas for me, Banjo-Kazooie has just about the right right amount of collecting, mm. um, especially with the uh, with the 360 version uh, doing the thing of um, mm. keeping yep. your, your note count uh, certainly eases eases any pain of that. But actually, you're not there. There isn't so much to collect. Like Mumbo skulls are just kind of in passing. Um, red feathers, blue eggs, anything like that. You really, after a while, you don't. You just don't need to gather those up as you pass them. Generally, uh, if you need, if you need them, you can go on a on a raid. So really, it's uh, obviously Jinjos, Jiggies, and notes. Um, and but Jiggies are can't really collectible as such. They are your reward for completing tasks mm. and exploring. So really, the only kind of sort of secret um, search the corners of the map collectible are Jinjos and I find those fun there's just five of mm. them and they make a cute noise and there's a satisfying jingle as with almost everything in this game when you collect them um, so it didn't overdo the collectathon aspect for me what about you fellows I think it was just about perfect and I think a lot of that comes down to the level size I know mm. one of the examples of really really bad collecting that I use um, in video games is the Assassin's Creed collectibles how there would be feathers and flags and stuff strewn throughout the levels. And in that case, the levels are much too big. There's no real, I guess, locational milestones that you can kind of like work your head around, say like, oh, I've been here before. I've already been down this way. I should start kind of systematically working my way that way. Whereas Banjo-Kazooie, the levels were of a manageable size and everything was very, um, I guess, easy to remember. The layout, uh, just everything felt like it was built for a collection-based game, which uh, really the collectibles were just there to mm-hmm. kind of encourage you to just explore this wonderful world and engage in these platforming challenges and find ways to navigate these, you know, tricky walls and mountains. And uh, it, it complemented the design of the game, whereas some collectibles in other games are in are there in spite of the design. Yeah, I think for me it was by by the time they introduced the gold feathers, that was the seventh collectible. I think uh, that they'd introduced it. it, There was a moment where I thought, you know, they're overdoing it a bit. But actually, when you are in the game and you are playing it, as you say, Leon, it's it is really only the Jinjos that you need to worry about, the Jiggies, 
and the notes the the other bits are power ups and you know items to be used but they're not you know it doesn't add to your completion score it's not a, you know you're not scored on it it's not a benchmark that you have to hit so they're forgettable essentially yeah you know i can see some, why people would feel overwhelmed with the amount of things to collect you know I, I i guess you know there are primary and secondary collectibles with the secondary kind of being more perishables but there are you know like the red feathers you know that you, you burn through them as well as the gold ones and I actually miss a lot of the collecting in Banjo-Tooie. They consolidated the notes from individual notes into nests, which would give you like five or ten at a time. And there was a like a golden treble clef in every world that would give Mm. you quite a large number of notes. And to me, like, it just wasn't as fun. Like, I I liked collecting a hundred individual notes. Yeah. And uh, it it felt a little cheap that I was, you know, doing them five at a time, which is not really a huge difference, but I just, uh, I didn't like it quite as much. Yeah. They kind of made a blunder there with the notes because I used the notes as a form of discovery. Like it kind of felt like I was discovering the world through these notes, you know, the hundred notes would lead me to areas. Then I would explore those areas where I was taken to, but to consolidate these notes into little nests, it kind of removed that kind of that natural, you know, or not so natural exploration. Uh, It was a bit of a shame because, when I put Banjo Two on the other day, and I got got into the first um, level, I can't even remember the name. Um, I kind of felt kind of disconnected from the world as a whole. You know, I didn't feel like I was following what they were. Breadcrumb trails, basically, is what I'm trying to say. I, I kind of felt like I wasn't a part of the world. It was it was very yes. odd. Collecting the notes, like everything else, makes a makes a little uh, happy sound. <laughs> um, and I think it's one of these games where I, I think so much about the graphics and the music that um, the sound I probably goes somewhat underappreciated by me but um the the flourish of the the extra life collection um certainly the the magical uh sound when a jiggy appears and all that sort of thing uh, and and the little noises of the various characters there's there's probably not that many sounds compared to uh other games because it was on an n64 cartridge but um but it it definitely all helped bring the bring the game to life for me. It's mm. kind of funny. Some of the sounds got a little annoying, like especially the Talon Trot. Uh, <laughs> your, your faster mode of, <laughs> yeah, of uh, transportation would be constantly squawking in the most annoying way. But then I watched some of the pre-release videos that had slightly different sound effects, or I play Banjo Tooie, in which they replaced banjos, grunts, and uh, types of just like incidental noises he would make with a much deeper voice which is mm. and it's just like uh i don't know it's just it's not right i i guess i'm more attached to the th- the sounds of banjo kazooie mm. than i thought i was we've already mentioned it uh a few times but um we must just uh go a little further on grant kirkhope's score because i think um we definitely got at least one piece of feedback uh saying that they they got driven slightly mad by the music <laughs> which i can understand um but uh, for me, it was always a highlight, and it's not just the composition of it. As I say, obviously, a lot of the compositions lean on other things or, or make reference to um, things that work for the theme of the, the area you're in or the game you're playing, or whatever. Um, other things to to enjoy um, are that sort of. Uh, well, LucasArts, I think, tried it first with their uh, immune system for the. Um, I think it was Monkey Island Two. It debuted in where the music uh the instrumentation changes slightly as as you as you move around i mean obviously mario 64 had it when you went in water and things like that but yes it's just uh i just think um it's it's a pretty wonderful evocative soundtrack it's probably not a soundtrack i'd listen to outside of the game 
But I think uh, there may be a, one or two people on this panel who <laughs> who might make an exception to that. Yeah, the, the music in the game definitely, uh, you know, it's an earworm from start to finish for me. It is, it is always like every time I think about Banjo-Kazooie, the music even now is sort of brimming through my head. You know, And it does have um, an overriding theme, like you say, and that, that changes naturally as you wander through each environment. And I think that's the reason why the soundtrack sticks in my head. Uh, so much because it is just it makes the world feel complete you know as you're walking from um you know woodland to an industrial type um you know environment the music will evolve and you know to to fit the theme and then when you enter a level you'll get its own tune which sort of feels familiar to the gruntilda's layer version you've just heard before it is yeah i i think it's grant hope's finest hour in terms of uh, music and i I hate to sort of you know To say that he peaked too early or anything, but for me, like this soundtrack, even compared to Tui and Nuts and Bolts and stuff, I just, I just think it's it's an absolute joy to listen to, even you know, out of um, out of game, just just wandering around town listening to Banjo Kazooie. <laughs> even now, like it's just ridiculous. I was going to say the biggest compliment I think I could pay for it is is how evocative it is of the the things it's meant to evoke. I'm not someone that pays very close attention to maybe music and sound effects and doesn't sort of appreciate them. As, as much as I should perhaps in terms of game design but when you're playing through the uh, Grunty's Furnace Fun level and you've got the sound uh, <laughs> tests you know where they're playing yeah. clips of songs or cl- sound effects they they just popped into my head instantly I knew which of the characters where they were hmm. I might not have uh, known them by name but visually I could I recognized the the character design and could match that to the to the sound effect and and the world as well, you know. You just close your eyes, listen to it, and you it it just takes you back to where where you were meant to be. And I think that's a, that's a as I say the the biggest um, praise that I could give it. Mm. You know, it, the the game spans a whole range of themes, as you mentioned earlier, like Christmas to Halloween to to sewers to swamps, and somehow they all feel connected. Um, and I, I can only attribute that down to the music. Uh, the the way the the game has a the the music has a bouncy vibe behind each track. It's it's there are literal variations on a theme. Like mm. there are there are there are certain um, motifs that appear in lots of the level themes, but they're done with different instruments and with different tempos. I think that's what that's what yeah connected, mm. but they're, they're they're distinctive, aren't they? Uh, of mm. their worlds and of and of the areas they're meant to be played in. Yeah, and this coming from a machine, you know, that is, uh, didn't have a you know, dedicated didn't have a sound, have a sound chip, chip and yeah. it, was, it was a cartridge-based uh, device. So it's, yeah. it, it's, it's stunning that they managed to cram it all into one cart. And uh, mm. yeah, the, you know, I can, I can listen to that intro music uh, for, uh, for every time I turn the machine, every time I turn the game on, uh, game on that music will stay on until the end. Seeing Mumbo Jumbo play the xylophone is just uh, Well, beautiful. I think, yeah, in a way that, that intro um, sequence is, you know, attests a to the fact that this game took its music very seriously. They play instruments. They play mm. the opening he, theme to you. He's named after any banjo and she's named after yeah, the kazoo. Indeed, mm. yes. Yeah. Ryan, you're a big fan. Oh, right? absolutely. This is this is absolutely something that I listen to or throw it on the back when I'm doing homework or something. Um, and I think the the crossfading between walking from section to section and even within the levels, uh, one of my favorite transitions is walking into the area in front of the giant Sphinx in, in mm. Gobi's Valley. And the music becomes uh, triumphant trumpets and uh, just mm. this very royal, very regal sound. 
but it just so seamlessly transitions. Um, and again, like I've already mentioned, Mad Monster Mansion is just a theme so evocative of, uh, of fun horror and just everything is just pitch perfect. Um, it's a very fun score and it has a lot of uh, very recognizable personality. You know, you can, you can hear it and say like, this is definitely, this definitely has a Banjo-Kazooie sound to it. Um, you know, Grant Kirkhope in using the MIDI instruments, which is something we don't get mm. very often anymore. Uh, they no. probably seem a little out of place in today's market, but for the kind of uh, cross-fading of tracks and the um, timing of everything that had to be just perfect for that cross-fading to work, um, it was just kind of a perfect storm of events that led to a, just a magnificent soundtrack. Mm. Speak, speaking of Mad Monster Mansion and sound effects, mm. do you reckon those flower pots swear at you, or are they saying thank you? Oh. I, I always thought they were having a bit of fun with that because you can uh, you can definitely hear it either way. Yeah, I didn't. I I just did that bit earlier, um, and what was weird was that I didn't. I I tried to uh, something about the the pots and my memory was telling me to poop eggs into those mm. pots but the first two or three times i tried it it didn't register it's really tough to get in there really it's they're, they're quite precise mm. um and then when it did happen um it's not the pots that are talking to you it's the corpses um i mean that's that's, right, yeah. that's a you know a testament to the dark tone of some of the bits of this game there are gravestones with graves you know you can see the mound of earth and i think the idea is that the the buried uh, corpses thanking you for putting flowers by their grave. Um, I only heard it as thank you, um, but maybe on the original N64 version where the sound is uh, a lower sample rate to keep it small on the cartridge, uh, it's a bit like the famous uh, you suck in uh, from <laughs> Shao Kahn in, in Mortal Kombat on the SNES, which didn't sound like suck at all. It's a little ambiguous, even if you uh, listen to it in the CRISPR Xbox 360 version, and I'd imagine they seem yeah. like the kind who would be a little cheeky oh, about yeah. that yes there's a few there's a few uh yeah a few rude names and things in there as there always is pretty much with a with a rare game um now i can't actually remember what uh how much of everything you need to have done to finish this game I, i'm sure it's i'm sure there's a there's a is there a non-complete completion and a complete completion yeah i'm not specific on the details but it kind of I'd say three quarters roughly of your jiggies and notes mm. are, are needed to get into the final, uh, the furnace of fun. Uh, yes. But then if you do get the 100% on everything, you get access to like a mega feather, red and gold, a mega egg, which, you know, it fills up your um, your capacity completely. And I think it extends it somewhat as well. Yeah, you get a kind of like a shield over your, over your uh, health. As well. over your, over your you health get twice thing. as much health yeah. if you get all but two of the jiggies you have two left over at the very end if you uh that's right yes god i remember that yeah <laughs> i think the only real requirement is uh is superhuman levels of patience to get through uh grunty's furnace fun that that last level was a. Uh, Do you, I I loved killer. Furnace Fun. No. I love it. I thought it was a work of no. genius. Yeah, uh, it was one of my favourite things about that game. Um, I think. So let's explain. It's basically it's it's presented like a TV game show, mm. um, and it's a bit like in 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 a funny sort of way. It's it's kind of like a, a deadly game of snakes and ladders. Or uh, there was a show we had over here in the seventies and eighties called The Adventure Game, where uh, celebrities had to walk. Uh, 
effectively across uh, across the vastness of space without being vaporized um but in this case you're you're landing on you you roll a dice of in some way i can't remember how and then uh progress through squares and there's different categories uh some of them will be asking questions of uh, things you've been told throughout the game by by gruntilda's sister about her habits and and uh, and things and tastes um there are others which involve I can't remember mini games. Yeah, uh, probably. So yeah, um, some squares yeah. will take you back to the mini games with very tight time limits. Right. Mm. Okay. Maybe those bits weren't so fun. The thing I liked about it was the concept, mm. and I particularly enjoyed the uh, show you an obscure corner <laughs> yeah, of the yeah. level, and you have to t- say where it's <laughs> from. Brilliant. I thought that was really cool. Really yeah, fun. it can be really punishing with the um, the the skull squares, and obviously I I only remembered this recently. But you you save your your Joker cards for the the skull squares to bypass them. But if you were to fail on the skull squares, you know right. it ejects you uh, and it just completely kills you, and you have to start from the beginning. You know, calling it furnace of fun, hmm. it's, it's, it's a bit of a, a bit of a stretch for me because <laughs> yeah. uh, it sort of added an extra hour onto my playtime uh, recently. So it's kind of like, oh, oh really? yeah, it took me forever. And, and I know the questions, but the, the 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 problem is for me is the 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 procedurally generated questions that you have to get the answers from Brentilda in the overworld. They they change yes. depending on each, uh, depending on who you are and what playthrough you're doing. So yep. the answers are yep. never going to be the same. And I, I yes. forgot that. And so it, when it was talking about soggy underwear and smelly socks and stuff i was like uh that one no you have to remember those you can't look them up uh you have to you have to speak to the sister um every time you come across her in the the hub world it's great if you are able to um play through the entire game in like a weekend but if you set the game aside for a few months and then come back to the furnace fun it's just infuriating it hardly even feels fair at that point yeah, furnace, furnace fun is a, becomes a bit of a misnomer after the fifth time of falling into the lava mm-hmm. and having to start again. <laughs> I think the furthest I got was halfway through, and then I noticed that there was uh, a series of about three uh, insta-death squares coming up, and I just thought, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll leave it here. That was, <laughs> that was the end of this playthrough anyway. I think I might have persevered with it the first time, uh, just yeah. you know, being younger and having more time uh, to devote to these sort of things, but I definitely don't have the patience for that sort of, I'd say, borderline sadistic gameplay design. One thing I wasn't so much looking forward to um, was the final boss. Now, I don't remember this being one of Rare's most uh, unpleasant final bosses. Um, I, I've, I, I recall having more trouble with uh, certain bits of Jet Force Gemini yeah. and DK64. Oh, mm-hmm. um, but I do remember it being tricksy. Uh, I think it's... I think my memory of it is not so negative because... Don't you build a giant ginger, ginger out of statue? Yeah, yeah. yeah. See that in itself um, kind of won me over yeah. <laughs> concept of it. But I can't remember the I, the fight with Grunty. I'm he's shooting eggs at her as she zooms about and stuff. I, I it's forget. a great fight. I just did it again last night. Um, oh, cool! But it is a great fight. You employ kind of you employ sorry all of the moves that you've gained throughout the game, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. uh, through a multi multi stage fight. It's a little frustrating because it doesn't checkpoint at any point, and so if you lose, you have to play the entire thing over again, which is a very, very long fight. Still on 360 yep. as well. Yeah, yeah, but right. that's uh, that's really the only downside. I think every every bit of it is very well designed and very fun to play. Uh, it's just mm. having to do it all okay. in sequence gets a, a little tiresome. Can you get any health back? There are a few drops. Occasionally. From... When she spits out her projectiles, they sort of turn into a... Uh kind of health honeycombs if i remember rightly it's certainly worth um having collected the extra health yeah um, absolutely yeah 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I really, I really enjoy the boss battle. I remember as a fifteen-year-old it being the hardest thing in the world, other than fighting Jaws in Aztec in Goldeneye. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, but you know, getting the double health and the um, the extra, um, you know, the extra invincibility feathers to, to defend the homing attack that she does it really helps. Uh, but the cauldron leading into that fight, you know, the one that's sort of on her side, but then on your side at the end, oh, it's so satisfying to jump into that because the 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 wail that Banjo gives out when he's flying up towards it, <laughs> I, I just love it. The, the way it builds up, it goes, and it just shoots them both out into the uh, roof. It is just, it is like the culmination of the whole game, just down to this one massive burst into the ceiling. It is I, I, I don't, it must be just me. I'm just a bit of a weirdo, but I just find that like cartoony, cartoonishly hilarious. And uh, yeah, the, the boss fight was really hard back in the day. It is, it is a really good boss fight. And yeah, like I say, one of the, one of the, I guess one of the easy ones from uh, Rare's Library of Nastiness. And she gets buried under a rock for two years. Mm. Um, but before we talk more about Tui, um, we must talk about uh, Stop and Swap and the secrets buried within Banjo-Kazooie <laughs> because this became as much uh, of a talking yes. point as as the game itself in some circles. So we probably all happened upon maybe one of the eggs in the ice key room during our normal playthrough. Or what it was, they gave you a slideshow showing that these eggs oh, yeah. exist, but there was no way mm, to get to right. them in the original game. Yeah. And so you saw that they were there. The game was telling you, you want these things and you can see the ice key. The At least one of them became collectible when when the Rare Witch Project uh, unearthed the <laughs> cheat codes yeah. for the Sandcastle, didn't yeah. they? Because I remember turning the game on two years after I'd completed mm -hmm. it. And going to Shark Bay Island on Treasure Trove Cove and climbing up and around and getting yeah. one of those eggs. And it felt like it was a, you know, it's like, wow, yeah. I finally, because I remember this was happening at the time. Do you remember um, Factor 5's N64 Rogue Squadron mm -hmm. game? Um, there was a code in that to unlock a Naboo Starfighter, yeah. which wasn't, which wasn't released until The Phantom Menace came out. Uh, or after the Phantom Menace came out, and somehow they managed to keep that completely secret, and that that was like, wow, that's that's really cool. Um, and then this, there were all these codes mm. that you could enter, as well as the ones that you could find in the game, and then go back to the Sandcastle and and make your life easier by slamming these um, letters. Mm. There was all this extra stuff where you'd type cheat, and it would make a mooing noise, mm. and then really really long sentences in this sandcastle and yeah and then you could get some of these eggs i'll tell you what i've never spent so much time looking for nothing uh ever like obviously it's not nothing yeah. there were eggs and keys and stuff but this was in yeah. the zeitgeist the irc the internet relay chat was was big uh rarenet uh website that i was lurking on at the time and rare Witch project were very much under the nintendork banner and we were all there trying to decipher what these eggs were doing and you know how we're going to get them and it was a guy called um well his moniker was Subdrag and his his buddy ice mario they were very much on the forefront of hacking the cartridge through action replay slash game sharks, whichever one you prefer. And yep. the stuff they were finding, like the ability to be wishy washy banjo whenever you want to be. And yeah, that's the, the, the washing machine and just all these things they were discovering. The fact that there were the extra three eggs that you weren't supposed to know about until two E came out, you know, Mumbo Jumbo showed mm. you the three eggs in the ice key at the end, but there were actually three more. There's one in Mad Monster Mansion, one in Nab Nuts um, uh, bedroom, I think. And there's another one as well. Yeah. But uh, one day he just come out on IRC and it's like, you know, boom, this is like, we found these action replay cheats within the cartridge and we, we didn't know what to do with ourselves. We lost our 
we lost our heads. <laughs> it was bonkers. We were there like, you know. Eight. I still get a buzz now just thinking about yeah, it, even though it's nonsense. It's ridiculously goosebumpingly yeah. exciting. And the fact that it's still a myth now, not so much of a myth now, but, it, you know, it still is a legend. It's still a myth that people get excited for. Uh, mm. It's a true testament to how devoted people were, including myself, into finding what was going on. So played through Tui to 100%, and it was like, oh, they've given us the eggs in, the, via, via car- N64 cartridges within Tui. And you think, well, that's a, that's a bit weird. And you know, mm. we were trying to decipher what, what Captain Black Eye's talking about with the dream and the posters on the wall. It was, honestly, it was a wild goose chase that, that went nowhere. And um, people from the Banjo team were joining this chat relay uh, uh conquer himself he's obviously it's chris siva but his, his moniker was conquer himself he'd even come in and wind us up he would he would literally tell us nothing and we were like oh my god this is this is amazing and <laughs> um it was it was so weird to be a part of that movement and something that i never really i never really thought would have a conclusion but i think the final thing was that they wanted to hop swap these cartridges which is the whole point That's of right. stop and swap is the fact that yeah you'd you go to a certain point in the game and it'd say, right now, take your cartridge out and you'd have 10 seconds to put the Banjo-Tooie cartridge in and somehow they'd, they'd work together to unlock these unlockables, which, you know, you, right. you do get into eventually, uh, which are, you know, I was very underwhelmed with. But that's because we had years of anticipation for this. Uh, so, yeah, the uh, the reason why they can uh, stop and swap was because of the, the, the see-through N64s had um, a shorter memory span in the EEPROM, I think, where it went from 10 seconds to one second. So right. they couldn't rely yeah. on everyone having the same machines to have that capability of 10 seconds of swapping the cartridges. Um, there, there were rumors of them doing a Sonic and Knuckles type cartridge where you'd lock it into the yeah. top and stuff like that. That's what I was expecting, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, they never come to fruition. and Prohibitive cost, I think. Yeah. Um, it's bonkers. And the only thing that's ever come close to that is the book in the bottom of Super Mario Sunshine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a book in, the, in there. And people went, we obviously went nuts for that, expecting Stop and Swap, you know, part two. But that actually happens in the uh, Xbox Live version of Banjo-Tooie. N64 in November 2000 uh, in USA and Japan uh, got it earlier this time than we did in Europe we had to wait until January 2001 not sure why after the Christmas rush the stop and swap had been kind of jury rigged I suppose um, in the sense that there were features contained from it um, but it had been programmed back into this game Mm. now I bought Banjo-Tooie day one of course and I played it the only way you really can play Banjo-Tooie, which is non-stop at the exclusion of anything else mm-hmm. until you've finished it. Um, because it is so big and so vast and so complex and there is so much to collect and remember that if you stop for even a day and start playing something else, you will forget mm, everything yep. about where you are and what you need to do. 
Now, the, I think it's fair to say that this game is not remembered with anything like the fondness of the original. I think I, mean, I, I didn't look up sales for this uh, one, but I think two years on the N64 was very much on its way out. Um, I guess even people who loved Banjo-Kazooie, a lot of them won't have necessarily felt the need to play another one. My overriding feeling was, I, you know, I did it, I did it, I did everything in it, I enjoyed it, but it felt like... Um, I, I don't like it when people say... Describe games as being soulless because either they're all made without soul, yeah. depending on what you believe, or you know, whatever. But it felt more like um, a mechanic, a set of levels and mechanics. And whereas Banjo Kazooie felt like this, you know, this thing that made you feel warm and happy. And Tui just felt vast and unfriendly and impressive, but it just didn't generate the same affection from me and I don't think too many other people but I don't know I know Brian hasn't played it um Des what about you what's your feeling on Tui obviously I got this on day one saving up my money per week paying it off week by week and you know I played it 100% in you know pure fever of stop and swap um I tried playing it again on Xbox Live and I got when it came out on Xbox Live I got about three quarters of the way through I got to Hellfire Peaks missed uh, left it alone for a day like you said and I come back and I was like what where, what am I doing? Like this game's so big, I've actually I'm actually lost, and I was frustrated. There was there was no maps online, um, there was no sort of there was a guide, but I hadn't I had I had no way of um, referencing my progress to the guide, so I hadn't been using the guide up till now anyway. So I tried to use a guide, and I was like, well, this is useless because it doesn't tell me where what I've done, you know, and where I'm doing it, and I just got lost. And for me, yeah. To, to get lost in a video game is rare. Uh, rare. But, um, <laughs> Do that it, 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 <laughs> To get lost in a game that's based on a sequel to one of my, you know, uh, most loved games of ever. Yeah. It is, yeah, it, it, it frustrated me. And I tried playing it the other day for the podcast and um, I got through the first, through the first level and I was just like, I just, I can't do this. And it, it hurts me to say that because, you know, I, I love their output and I, I think it's great, but I think to his aged um, you know, it's, it's severely aged compared to Banjo Kazooie, and I think that's down to the size. Like levels are literally linked via a train. Like levels that aren't really linked at all, really. Like, you, why would I want to take a train from the uh, the carnival level to the Hellfire Peaks? It, none of it really made the same amount of sense that Banjo Kazooie did. You know, Banjo Kazooie felt or feels cohesive. It feels like a, a unit. It feels like a, a world that you want to run, run around in. Whereas here, it kind of feels like. There's too many worlds within one world. It is, yeah, it feels disconnected from from Gruntilda's lair, which you know it's not. It's literally not. It is on the opposite side. It's for a different cave in the uh, in Spiral Mountain. But it was also pushing the N64 beyond uh, what it. Because I mean, you know, again, on a technical level, it was impressive, but the frame rate dropped in in you know regularly in some of the bigger areas. Um, there were some really ambitious level designs, but it it felt to me like you know retreads and and stuff um ryan what about you did you did you you obviously you were that bit older but still not earning earning wages at this point so uh i remember this this again was a you know it was an expensive 256 megabit cartridge and um, did you get it at the time or was this playing it around a friend uh, this again? would have been playing it at a friend's again and actually i spent less time with this when i was younger and kind of came back to it more when i was a uh, little older and okay. Uh, I know what you're saying about the game feeling like it has less soul, like it's a, a little bit just different, like it didn't recapture that same magic, which is kind of the consensus that I get when I talk to Banjo-Kazooie fans typically. 
And I, mm. I've thought a lot about that in the past, you know, playing it through. I, I think it's, it's just about as good a sequel as I could ever hope for. Uh, you know, mechanically, it's very inventive. The levels are still designed very nicely, if even a little too big. But I think one of the things that it was missing was uh, kind of the pure joy of Banjo-Kazooie that they, they start you off in a ruined version of Spyro Mountain, which is kind of a joke. Uh, it has very like down-tempo music, and it's the same mm. kind of introductory tutorial level from before, but it's just everything is destroyed and burnt up. Bottles dies. Mm. And then just every level you go to, there's never anything happy in the game. Like Everything is kind of like... Uh, the very first level, which is kind of a riff off of uh, Mun- Mumbo's Mountain in the first game, it's kind of a Mayan theme yeah. as well, it has another mm-hmm. enemy that shoots stuff at you that will attack you whenever you're standing still. And so you always kind of feel like you're on the defensive. And then from there, it takes you through a series of either like really dark worlds, like um, the carnival is is kind mm-hmm. of really like dark, grungy and nasty. And there's no like... There's no lovable clanker to kind of like bring out mm-hmm. the fun side of that like grungy nastiness. Mm. Um, and and then the rest of the worlds that are a little bit lighter are, uh, they have like a really, a few like really bizarre, like kind of like off-puttingly bizarre, kind of like David Lynch bizarre things that happen in them. Like Canary Mary, I've always found like a terribly upsetting character. Uh, just yeah, as, weird. Or, like father, mother out of... Um... Zeno clash. Absolutely. It's, uh, and the, the challenges were, um, kind of less consistently good than in Banjo-Kazooie. Um, there were a few things that were very frustrating. I remember the race against Canary Mary in, um, Cloud Cuckoo Land. the second time that you race Canary oh. Mary, you do that. My favorite named, uh, platform level ever. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a very fun level. Um, you, you race Canary Mary by, alternating tapping the a button and the b button which is something that also happened in rayman 2 and some of the mario party type games it was kind of a popular design Mm. trope at the time um but it was incredibly demanding like incredibly demanding like i can't even do it now uh to to beat the xbox live arcade version i had to turn off the controller after i challenged her to the race plug in the rock band drum set and then have my friend who is a drummer come by and beat that for me by like that's brilliant thinking outside i should not have to do that crazy that you no, no no oh it's just a nightmare that's that's like one of those things where it's like i kind of don't want to go back to it because i i say like oh i'll have to race canary mary again at some point if i do (laughs) there are innovations um banjo and kazooie uh, can separate now um, mm. and Mumbo is a controllable character at various points. Banjo sounds different and looks slightly different. Jiggy's honeycombs and other objects no longer have eyes or speak. I mean, perhaps it's things like that that, you know, that actually robs mm. the world of some of its silly, its lovable silliness. Um, enemies regenerate. Mm, yep. Things like that. Uh, health, uh, health honeycombs disappear after time. So, you know, stuff like that's a little less friendly as well. There's actually one very small change that always bugged me for this. I don't know, it's the stupidest little thing, but the honeycomb mm. life bar is now all a straight line instead of, kind <laughs> yeah. of like stacked like honeycombs are yeah. shaped in a very specific way because they stack very nicely and it it's a, one of nature's most genius absolutely, designs. And it, yeah. it, just, it ruins yeah. it to line them up corner to corner. Also, the uh, Banjo-Kazooie next to the life bar is no longer animated. Mm, yep. 
Um, again, just little things mm. like that you might not even notice. But it, it does it does have um, elements of GoldenEye's uh, stack library level and complex, so it gets a little thumbs up from me. <laughs> what uh, assets? No, of, actual level yeah. design moments. You know when you go into first person oh, in okay. the first level um, in the mm. temple. Uh, you know, there's like a first person moment where you have to run around and collect things, obviously. They're, they have literally taken elements of uh, Complex, which is a level from GoldenEye, and mm. uh, also Stack Library. Uh, literally designed, like they've copied and pasted it from one game to another and added a new texture on it. And there is very bizarrely a first person shooter multiplayer game, which came back in Donkey Kong 64 as well, which is bizarre. <laughs> so there was, yeah. 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 And uh, speaking of stopping swap earlier, I failed to mention... Um, Bottles Revenge, which was a, a cooperative mode where you played as Devil Bottles and he could possess enemies. Kind of like how Super Mario Galaxy has the pointer mode. You know, you could uh, plug in a second controller uh, conceptually. It never, it, well, you could do it through Game Shark, but you know, you can never officially do it. You could possess enemies and make them do crazy stuff. Yeah, they were looking at um, having the possibility of having enemy uh, bosses controlled by a second player mm. as well, weren't they? But um, they only got it working with one before they abandoned that idea. And the game doesn't need an expansion pack, you know, which is, uh, a, yeah. a, I don't know how they managed to make a game like that on the N64. Because it, it does actually look really nice when you look at the world. It, it's just it's just too big. The fact that they've added um, teleport pads to the levels. Trains and teleport pads to yeah. levels. Is, and yeah, you can, you can just play as Mumbo and you transform at a different Humble Wumba. It's just... The, the, the game is too different, but the same. You know what I mean? They've added too many things to it. They've, they've, here we go, Kane and Rinse catchphrase. Over-egged the pudding. There you go. Mm-hmm. I, I don't feel like I've missed out on much by not having gone back to it. Mm. Um, but there is a little part of me which would quite like to see some of it again. There are a couple of things that it did very well, and I, I don't want to completely rag on Banjo-Tooie. I think that the sure. uh, music is just as good and sometimes even better mm. in areas. I remember the uh, theme from Jolly Roger- Rogers Lagoon being very good. Uh, mm. The yeah. music from mm. Grunty Industries being very good. The music mm. from The Overworld maybe even being better than Gruntilda's Lair, although I have such nostalgia for that original piece. Yeah. I can never judge that objectively. It's just something that's out of my spectrum of uh, of control. And the uh, bosses were, I think, a lot better in the second game than they were in the first. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Grant Kirkhope obviously was still on form, writing music in the same way as, as before and, yeah, probably expanding upon his... Uh, repertoire um, the bosses I don't really recall too much about the bosses actually but much like larger encounters a lot of the bosses in Banjo-Kazooie 1 were kind of incidental encounters where you would walk over to a portion of the map and they would just start uh, you know scratching at you and uh, you'd take them down that way whereas you would get full cutscenes and uh, boss Mm. names in uh, in Banjo-Tooie but they were they were quite inventive remember Mm. Mr. Patches and the uh some very bizarre and interesting bosses. It's certainly not a game that I would have, you know, sort of told anyone was a disaster or, you know, in the great uh, world of awful video game sequels, it's not there. It's just, I just think for so many people, it, for whatever reasons, it doesn't evoke the same, the same warm feelings. Um, But yeah, it's there. It's there on Xbox Live Arcade with the first game, obviously with the same enhancements of looking a bit nicer and performing a bit better. So that's at least, you know, a good thing that it is a, an old game with interesting facets that is easily and not, you know, too expensively available. 
Before we move on to community correspondence and such matters, um, we are going to talk a little about the two Game Boy Advance games. Um, now, Des uh, is intimately familiar, Darren, with uh, with Banjo-Kazooie Grunty's Revenge. This arrived in September uh, and October 2003, mm-hmm. 11 years ago now. Um, game Boy Advance only. It's not available on anything else. I don't think it's ever never come out as a virtual console game or anything like that. Um, it's GBA cart or uh, dodgy emulation or bust. Mm. Um, so tell us a little bit about Grunty's Revenge. Yeah, Grunty's Revenge is a kind of a top-down version of Banjo-Kazooie, I guess. It's, it's his own game. You know, it has its own levels. Um, but it, yeah, it, it really is just like a kind of a top-down version of that. It is, it's enjoyable. I wouldn't say it was, it's not essential by any stretch of the, uh, any stretch of the imagination. But mm. I remember enjoying it at the time. Uh, you know, it does it does the usual things of you know the the jiggers and the notes. So it is a banjo kazooie game. It's just a it's it's just extremely small. I don't remember it lasting any longer than four hours. I think it was just it was it was over before you knew it. And I kind of think that game was sort of doomed from the off. If you know what I mean, I think they they kind of they they sewed it up because of the um you know the THQ publishing it deal because they were sort of going through transition. Uh, at the time, I do believe. Oh, memory's really hazy about that, but yeah, THQ published it, and I think they, they 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 just sort of saw it at a certain point and went, "Okay, we'll publish that and just get it out the door." And it was kind of like, "Okay," right. and I think that that holds true for um, Banjo Pilot because it was originally Diddy Kong Pilot as a sequel for Diddy Kong Racing. Yeah, so I mean, both uh, both games were presumably put together by separate teams within Rare, not the not the main Banjo Kazooie Two mm. uh, team, no. I would assume. Um, yeah, the, the Grunty's Revenge was um, had a mixed reception, some quite positive reviews um, and some middling, um, which uh, did allude to uh, the s- small size of the game, left it with a with a 72% meta score. Mm. Um, Banjo Pilot, as you say, uh, arrived a couple of years later in um, January, February 2005, uh, I guess it's a year and a half later. And as you said, this would have been a probably Nintendo-released Diddy Kong game. Of course, Diddy Kong, although that character was created by Rare, was related to Donkey Kong and therefore a Nintendo property. Which we should mention that um, Banjo was first introduced in Diddy Kong Racing. Like That Mm, was his first appearance, as well as uh, Conquer the Squirrel. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And Tip Top. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whatever happened to Timber the Tiger and his acid casualty <laughs> well, eyes? He had his own game at one point, didn't he, Timber? He was he was around uh, when Conker mm-hmm. was a fluffy, cute game. Uh, Timber had his own platformer at one point as well. And Squeaky the Mouse? Uh, no. Drumstick? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and TT. Uh, so yeah, Banjo Pilots, I had a brief encounter with it at my time at Rare in a, in a form of playing it in different languages just to make sure it worked and then it was gone. Um, I don't have much fondness for it at all, uh, even at the time. Uh, I think the two Banjo games are probably the worst of their GB output. I rate uh, Saber Wolf highly. You worked on that one and I, that was actually that was something I wanted to mention. Um, probably the best reason for a uh, a long-standing Ultimate Play mm-hmm. the Game fan to I'm play Banjo-Tooie is a, is a Saber Man uh, cameo. Mm, yes. Yeah. Um, I, when did um, when did that uh, Saber Wolf GBA game come out? Oh, man, I can't, I can't remember. I just remember playing it a lot. 2004? It, I think it was, yeah. I, like I say, my memory's really hazy, but that is mm. probably their best GBA. If you, you know, 
uh, GBA game. Uh, the Donkey Kong Country 2 port's all right. It's Donkey Kong Country 2 with, uh, you know, slightly yep. rubbish graphics. But um, yeah, Saber Wolf is definitely their, their, their highlight mm. of GBA output. Uh, Sadly, also difficult to get a hold of these days. Yeah, I, I think it sold one copy, and I think that was me when, when it was released. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should, you should play Saber Wolf. It's great. Um, but not Banjo Pilot, which apparently was so much of a of a sort of late reskin after um, Rare moved uh, Microsoft Woods that um, the music in the game is recognisably uh, Diddy Kong mm. music because they didn't rescore it. So, but there it is; it's out there legally and illegally, bargain bins and uh, rom dump sites. Now, before we summarise ourselves, we must hear from some of our community, and uh, we have uh, a spread of opinions. Uh, this, uh, these are people who have posted at canerince.com forum or uh, in, if you prefer, you can email us uh, at, to podcast at canerince.com. That is a new address. Right, starting with Sonuckles, here is Brian reading. Ah, Banjo-Kazooie. I remember how this game ruined one of my summers. I remember getting that awful demo video in the mail early in the summer and being tantalised about how this game would be coming out soon. My 12-year-old mind took soon to mean in a few months, but in reality I think the game came out a year after I'd seen the video. I must have spent every single day that summer checking with the local rental stores to see if they had it. No luck. Eventually the game did come out, and I remember being floored by it. Not since Mario 64 had I played such a fun 3D platformer. It's actually one of the few games I got 100% completion on back then. Getting all the jiggies was fairly simple in comparison to finding all of the notes. I had picked up the Primer Strategy Guide at a local game store, and let me tell you, that guide was no help. It would point out a few clusters here and there, but otherwise you are on your own for finding those. What I remember is that seemingly endless wait for the game, with that video that teased my adolescent sensibilities. And the irony is, once I beat the game, Rare went on to tease me some more with the promise of the stop and swap goodies. It was such a huge mystery what those items were. I remember having found the ice key long before 100% completing the game, and wondering what it did. Of course, people who are familiar with the series know that the swapping mechanic was scrapped from the game. It's for that reason I'm rather glad I never pursued Banjo-Tooie. Glenn Watts, aka Mr. Flabio, he says, I really don't rate the Banjo games very highly. The camera is wayward and frustrating, the controls often oddly heavy and imprecise, and they're obsessed with collecting a whole series of hidden items, admittedly not to the extent they go with, with Star Fox Adventures, but the beginning of it is definitely here, which means scaring levels over and over while the music drives you slowly insane. I played through most of the first one, mainly because I didn't have much else to play at the time, but I've never felt any desire to go back to it. Fair mm. enough. Katie120 says, This is one of the games that got me through my childhood. After I came home from school, I would boot up the Nintendo and have some fun with the best bear and bird duo ever created. Um, Only? <laughs> and, and yeah, anyone think of it? <laughs> Banjo and Kazooie must have been one of the most famous gaming partnerships from that generation the games would make anyone happy except Mr. Flabio there uh, they're colourful, adventurous and funny one of the funny memories I've got from those games is the character's speech the characters in this game don't speak not properly every character uses their own form of gibberish as their language some are utterly ridiculous but hilarious a sad moment I do remember from Banjo-Tooie a sad moment probably for all gaming fans was Bottle's death R.I.P. Bottles. I would recommend this to anyone who's got kids that would like to start playing video games because it's the perfect game to start with. Airy G says, The first game it just didn't gel with me. The biggest issue was the controls, and I don't find the levels interesting to explore, so time force navigating them for items was frustrating, and more often than not, a chore. 
short and bitter. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, Woodfella says, I love this game. Got it for my birthday, I believe, back in the day. It was one of my favourite games for ages. I played it loads, did everything. It was just full of little funny, charming designs. Who thought putting googly eyes on inanimate objects would work so well? This is one of those games that I just love unconditionally because of when, when I played it. Now, whenever I boot it up, I'm hit by a wave of nostalgia. Oh, and the music is flipping mint. Actually, we have one mm. more from uh, Gary Blower. Yeah, guest of the show. Uh, Dan Tyriad. He says, 1998 was a big year for me. I passed the quarter century. I had bought my first flat after moving to Wiltshire from Kent. Arsenal won a first domestic double under Monsieur Wenger and the bear and bird entered my life. Banjo-Kazooie remains one of my favourite video games of all time. It's one of the few games I've played and completed more than once. Probably a dozen times in fact, including speedruns. Every time I've been down or miserable, Banjo-Kazooie is crammed back into the N64 for just one more go. It is very hard to put a finger on just one thing that makes the game so special for me. I was, like most, a huge fan of Mario 64. When the bear and bird came along, they brought a game filled with intelligence, wit and pathos. On its surface, Banjo-Kazooie plays the cute card with 10 tons of sugar, but delve a little deeper into Gruntilda's lair, and it's filled with beauty, ugliness, humour, tragedy and brilliantly bad verse. The game did and still does speak to me in ways that few other games do. I love the controls, I love the characters, I love the music, I love the level design, and I really love the collecting. Anyone who made it through to the final few levels of the game will have been treated to two of the smartest 3D platform levels ever conceived. Mad Monster Mansion is chock full of toilet humour, literally, and little digs at video game cliches, whilst Click Clock Woods provided a brilliant seasonal twist on replaying the level in differing configurations. For me, video games are more than base mechanics and learned interactions. They are about allowing my imagination to carry myself away into another world. The closer games get to photorealism, virtual reality and uncanny valley, the further they are away from what make video games so special for me. To this day, Banjo-Kazooie remains the most I've repeatedly enjoyed any video game in my 40 years. I say just uh, one thing about his is he mentions Click Clock Woods design, which uh, puts you through the same level four times, which is a brilliant mechanic. And uh, there was actually a very similar, similar level in Donkey Kong 64, the Fungi Forest, which allowed you to play the same thing in night and day, and it would change certain elements. Oh, yeah. And that was uh, originally programmed for Banjo-Kazooie, but they couldn't get it finished up soon enough. And so they, they uh, cut it out of that game and put it into Donkey Kong 64, which is why it feels like oh. such a Banjo-Kazooie level. Mm. Good knowledge. I didn't know that. Um, yes, I did. As I say, did do almost everything in Donkey Kong 64. Uh, didn't enjoy much of it. Um, probably enjoyed that level more than the rest of it, uh, if that's anything to go by. Now we have a smattering of your three-word reviews. Uh, we get these on Twitter. You can follow us at Kane and Rince. Necumancer says, bear and bird. Ben Ford says, rare Mario equal. Joey Hamilton, gotta collect everything. Tom Russell says, now collect this. The simply named Scott says, squawkingly good fun. Katie Stubbs says, colourful, fun, nutty. Richard Woodward says, intro hummed forever. And Mitchell Bennett says, nostalgic platforming bliss. Thanks for all of those. And uh, look out for our tweets on recording day to supply us with your three-word reviews of games that we have coming up. As I say, the schedule is to to be found on the blog, canerince.com. So let us summarize. Uh, Brian, you've only played the first one. That's fine. Um, just talk about that one. Would you recommend that people pick it up today? You know, I would, I think. Uh, going back to it, 
the second time through it you know you can tell the bits where it's aged in terms of controls and you know the graphics but i think it it retains the essence of what made it so enjoyable the first time through there is the the feeling of exploration there is that refreshing element of uh, you know being thrown into a world and being left to to dig around in nooks and crannies to and find your own way through and uh, aside from the, the the trouble I had with you know things like the grunty furnace fun and some of the complexities of the controls, I it was it was thoroughly enjoyable and it was a game that had me uh, smiling all the way through and I think that's rare for games now to, for a game to evoke that emotion consistently throughout and I think uh, rare achieved that with uh, Banjo Kazooie and it's it's well worth picking up for you know the tenner I paid for it on XBLA or for two quid extra with Banjo Tooie I wish I'd got that deal yeah you should have waited a couple of days <laughs> um, for me uh, I have an enormous amount of residual uh, fondness and affection for Banjo Kazooie um, even though uh, I've still only played it through properly the once albeit though it was only uh, it was over a two year period um, since I bought the live arcade version six years ago, I've played it for a grand total of about 10 hours and I've now most of the way through it on this playthrough. Um, I think I feel like it's aged better than I was expecting it to have. Um, some games from that era, for whatever reasons, technical reasons or, or the way that game players moved on, things we expect um, mean that some games from that time, 3D games particularly, can be tough to go back to, but particularly 4J's Xbox 360 version of Banjo-Kazooie, while it doesn't have the same capability, uh, capacity to you know blow me away in terms of graphics or size anymore, um, I've still found myself thoroughly uh, engaged and absorbed in that world uh, once again um, uh, with pretty strong desire to hunt down every last collectible from each nook and cranny um, revisit all those googly eyed characters um, and I would as sceptical as I was about western developed cutesy platformers um, back then um, I think I would still probably even 16 years later play this one ahead of any Jack and Daxter, any Crash Bandicoot any Ratchet and Clank um, I just have this uh, this great warmth, and I think it's for for all the reasons we discussed um, about how it sells that evocative childhood feeling. But also, uh, I think it's a really fun game to actually control bear and bird, learn the moves, and negotiate the levels. Apart from those few, as we say, few annoying annoying bits and tricky camera moments or control moments, but are fairly easily glossed past. Darren? Yeah, I think asking me if Banjo-Kazooie is any good or not is kind of like asking me if, you know, if I want to breathe tomorrow, breathe oxygen tomorrow, because the answer is just going <laughs> to be, yeah, I think it's... Um, it's probably it's one of the N64's finest moments and kind of summarises rare... Uh, you know, at, at their best, it kind of summarizes that studio in one game. You know, there's humor, there's there's great level design, there's great music. It, it kind of just, I, I do believe it's one of their one of their finest moments, and it it literally changed my life. You know, if I hadn't been so heavily involved with Stop and Swap, I wouldn't have met the people that I know now, and you know, they wouldn't have got me an interview at Rare, and therefore I wouldn't have been a tester, so blah 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 blah, and. But playing it, playing it recently in the year 2014, I was surprised by how 
how much fun it still is, you know, that the camera is a bit poo in places and some of the level design elements of Click Clock Wood, as we mentioned earlier, are, are a bit bit iffy. But overall, I, I yeah, like, like you say, you, you couldn't recommend a 3D platformer uh, over this one, really. I don't know. I'm rambling. Um, but Banjo-Kazooie is well worth playing now, just as much as it was back then. Worth 10 quid on Xbox Live Arcade, you reckon? Or £6 for each? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, if you've never played either of them, you know, you, you'd be wise to get the double pack. If you haven't played two before, you can definitely play two and and enjoy it. It's just that I, th- I think I'm a bit bitter towards it with all the whole the, st- the you know the whole stop and swap fiasco that happened behind it all. I think <laughs> I, I enter Banjo Banjo Two and just think, oh yeah, stop and swap, and then I kind of switch off. Um, but yeah, Banjo Kazooie and Two and you know further on in the series on the Xbox 360 nuts and bolts, you know they're all tremendous games and well worth playing. We're not talking about nuts and bolts. I know. <laughs> Not today. I'm sure we will another time. Um, but yes, blame Nintendo's hardware revisions for the uh, for the for the death of Stop and Swap. Wasn't really Rare's fault, was it? I suppose. Uh, let's conclude with Ryan. Uh, Banjo Kazooie is a game that I've played so many, so many times. Like I could breeze through the first few levels with my eyes closed if I decided to. It's um, just every little polygon is just etched into my memory. I, I know we like to avoid these types of, of words, but I, I think that it, it's on my short list of two games that I consider to be perfect games. And I'll qualify that by saying that there's nothing that I would add to or take away from it. Like, I think it just sets out to do exactly what it wants to do. And it gets out before it gets too old. It, you know, it just everything about it is so wonderfully unique and so wonderfully realized for what it sets out to do. It it has aged so mar- marvelously, and especially the Xbox Live Arcade version is the one to play if you're going back to it these days. I think the controls remapped for the Xbox 360 controller feel great, and the graphics, while kind of blocky, I think have aged really well. I think the animations are still really good and really fluid, and so they kind of ease the know, blockiness inherent in an N64 title. Um, and then the texture work is just fantastic the way that textures kind of fade into each other as you know the elevation rises or in different parts of a wall um you know there are times even still where i stop somewhere look at a hill and think like that's some very very clever texture work on that one just it looks marvelous for Mm. for what it is so i i'd say absolutely go back and play banjo kazooie and uh tui sure yeah you know Give it a shot. If you like Banjo-Kazooie a lot, then there's still a lot of, of uh, good stuff in Banjo-Tooie. And even if it's just kind of whetting your appetite for what more can we do with this system that we built and to kind of allow you to <laughs> imagine what else you can do with it, it, it does kind of propose some interesting ideas. And I guess that's kind of the experience with the second game is that there are times when it just doesn't work. So there are times when it does work, but there's enough really brilliant moments in the second game to where I say it's still worth checking out. Um, but yeah, absolutely. First game, uh, give it a go. It's probably my my favorite game if I had to pick one to be stuck with for the rest of my life. Smashing. Yes, I, I knew you were a fan. All right, then. Uh, so for this issue, it just remains for me, Leon Cox, to thank Brian Tarrant, Darren Gargett and Ryan Heyman. And to tell you that next time in issue 138, we're on a mission to deliver the message about Tearaway. Until then.
Thank <laughs> you.